You ought to know that things are going to be just as rotten this week as last. Nothing better than the sudden realization that you'd better stand up straight. Pull in your gut! All of you. That round set of ball bearings that the staff sergeant uses with those beautiful creases right through his stripes are enough to straighten up the most slothful individual. It's Monday. We've got to get it all underway again. The same old rotten climb up the... By the way, speaking of uh, it being Monday... I must admit, already, I miss that morning thing that I was doing last week for Peter Lynn Hayes and Mary Healy. Now, I'll, I'll tell you why. It's very, very subtle. I am a great believer in change. In fact, I hope that tonight, about halfway through the show, Mr. Leader calls up and says, Fire that idiot! And I would, uh, I would go out happily. <laughs> I would get into the elevator and head off into the middle distance. Uh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm more and more convinced that the most, I, 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 I really believe it, that the most, uh, deleterious thing, the most, the most decaying thing that can happen in anybody's life, in a nation's life, is no change. I mean, the minute you got a slot dead, you are D-E-D. D-E-D. And I'm serious, you, you spend all of your life looking for a slot, and once you get into it, all you do is to begin to dig it deeper until finally it's six feet deep, and then you pull it in after you, you know, <laughs> and just sort of lay it down. And I, I'm sorry, you know, change change is a very important thing. In fact, about halfway through one of the one of the Monday morning shows, it suddenly occurred to me. Uh, we're talking about Vic and Sade. I don't know how the subject of Vic and Sade came up, which is a radio show. I'm sure most of you never heard. But the point about Vic and Sade was that Vic and Sade took. Uh, I suppose you might say people out of American life, you know, just things around, and they placed them into a certain context and laid it out for you. For example, every morning, about, oh, I'd say about one morning out of five, Sadie would say, the brick mush man just left. Uh, the brick mush man just left. And that was the only identification this guy ever had. He was the brick mush man. He came to the house once a week with brick mush. <laughs> Brick mush. Don't say, what is brick mush? What is mush? Brick mush. That's a Midwestern thing. It's brick mush. All right, what's a knish? You guys all know what knishes are. All right. Think you're so smart? Well, uh, I don't know what a knish is, but I sure know what brick mush is. And since you don't know what brick mush is, don't come around with me with the smart stuff about uh, about uh, bagels and stuff. I know about brick mush. All right, what is brick mush? You don't know. Well, that's too bad. I'm an American. I know. But every week, the brick mush man would come. 
Now, there, there is a point, there is a genuine piece of Americana that is practically gone. And I'll tell you what we used to have. We used to have a guy that would come around about every two weeks to our house. And he wore scruffly clothes. He had a cap on. He would drive a truck around. And he would make a delivery every two weeks. And he was the horseradish man. All he <laughs> now, that, now, there was a guy whose entire life was being a horseradish man. Uh, there was the fuller brush man. He came around and all he had was brushes. He was a fuller brush man. Uh, there was the coffee man. Did, did they have coffee men out here? They did. See, he remembers that, sure. And it's not so old. Uh, they had a coffee man that came around with a truck and he d delivered coffee. Literally delivered coffee. And uh, he was the coffee man. Then there was the egg man. The egg man would come around and uh, he had eggs. And then there was another guy. There was a guy that came around that had, uh, what? Bread. Yeah, the bread man, of course. And a, there was the bakery man, the guy that came with the rolls and stuff. But, uh, of course, Vickensade had a brick mush man. And uh, the brick mush man, and now I'm, I'm sure that you're, that you're going to look at me and, say, you know, people say, what, what the devil is a brick mush? What do you mean it's an invention? I'm sorry, to me, this was the only time in American fiction, and Vickensade was fiction, it was the only time uh, fiction, but yet it was more real than uh, than any any uh, documentary could be, because a documentary on American life would never consider the Brickmush Man. Somehow, when we do documentaries, we miss the point completely. I, I saw them one day had a big documentary on a neighborhood here. You know how the CBS and NBC, these serious stations, are always doing a big documentary on a typical block in New York, and it comes alive about as alive as one of those plastic polyethylene horses come alive that they blow up with air, you know, and you sit on and you ride around outside Jones Beach. And, uh, yeah, they, they're very pontifical. And uh, there's usually somebody like Charles Collingwood walking around with a microphone. And over here is where the Neighborhood Boys Club meets. Uh, the social worker says, and we're going to talk to him now. Uh, how about, and, you know, this kind of jazz. Not once do they talk about the guy that comes up and knocks on the back door at Saturday, on Saturday mornings. The brick much man comes. You know? <laughs> well, well, I, I, uh, I don't know. You see, and uh, they never talk about again relating. I suppose the closest thing could be probably the fiction of guys like. Uh, well, there was a guy who wrote wrote fiction about the Midwest. Uh, you know, the Midwest is in America, friends. Uh, who wrote fiction about the Midwest and sold it to kids. Oddly enough, his fiction contained more truth about attitudes, behavior patterns, the way people acted. How many of you remember a guy who wrote books called the Papillot series? Did you ever hear of Papillot, the tittering totem? Did you ever hear of... Uh, uh, yeah, they were great. They were, uh, they were wild things, and they, they, they talked about brick mush men and people who were divorced. I remember one story was about this kid uh, whose, whose family was divorced and they lived on both sides of a river, the family did, and the old man wouldn't talk to the wife for years and she wouldn't talk to him and the kid was very embarrassed in the neighborhood about it. Uh, he didn't know quite how to handle it. This is not at all the kind of fiction that you'll find in uh, Salinger, for example. He, he doesn't have self-conscious. But the brick mush man was part of it and is part of the kind of America that uh, we all know, you know. Uh, the used car salesman. Does he ever enter any any fiction you've ever read? Does John O'Hare ever write about him? No. 
Do you ever read about him in the New Yorker? No. Do you ever read about him in the Saturday Evening Post? No. Well, where is he? He's not in fiction. No, he's not there. They don't. They, he's never recorded. You know, like like my <laughs> my kid brother works for Borden's out in out in the Midwest. You know, and uh, he he uh, he has all kinds of things. Uh, Borden's Dairy, and uh, they sell all you know what Borden sells, all that stuff. And uh, he he makes the scene, goes around, and he sees all these guys in these big stores, and he he pushes sometimes a gigantic truck and all this. So one day he came here to New York, and he's looking around. I said, you know, Rand. Uh, his name is Randall. I said, Rand, you do not even exist in American fiction. <laughs> you, uh, Edward Albee doesn't even know you're alive. Uh, and there he is, the Brickmush Man. Uh, have you ever read a short story about a guy working in the traffic department of WOR? No. No, what, what, what are stories written about? I don't know. I don't know who they are. Who are these guys Herb Gold writes about? <laughs> I'm serious. It's just a question. It just, just occurred to me. I don't know. I never read about anybody I've ever run into. I, I read, uh, and, and it's fiction. And then, then, of course, the next day when it's reviewed, after it comes on the market, you'll hear Orville Prescott, a searing, realistic view of American Midwestern life was uh, thoroughly enjoyed by this reviewer. However, certain reservations regarding style and the use of four-letter words and, uh, you know, this uh, uh, the typical uh, uh, New York Times, you can hear the leather chairs squeaking. Uh, there's a kind of smell of old dead palm leaves in the background. And you can hear people cleaning out the silver spittoons. And, and, a, and a tray of nice, polite drinks are being brought into the reviewer. You know, a searing indictment of the Midwestern life was... <laughs> oh, my... You know, what in the devil are we talking about? Speaking of searing indictments of Midwestern life and the shallow vapidity of New York existence, this is WOR AM and FM, New York. Sir, the airline just called. <laughs> Who is the airman? Your jet leaves at 8.45 tonight. He could be you, a man with the thirst for a manly approved. You arrive in Rome at 10 tomorrow. Free of the foreman. Every time, choose the bolder, keener, tasting ale. Will there be anything else, sir? Valentine! There's a little bit of the ailman in all of us. And nothing brings it out Isn't like it a Valentine. Isn't it sad how we have to prove virility these days? Older, little things cleaner, like ordering the right beer. More to the point. How good you Valentine are hailing a cab and stuff like the that. The ailman's ale. Who is the ailman? He could be you. A man with a thirst for a manly approval. Three out of four men. Every time, choose the Boulder Peter tasting ale. Valentine. Quack. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to do it. Of course, a lot of things a guy's got to do. Uh, I remember one. <laughs> I remember one time a guy. I was working in a radio station with a guy, and. Uh, we're, we're sitting around one night, and we're, we're just sitting there, and there's a, there's a certain sense of uh, timelessness and, I might add, unreality that comes into a, an organization or something that is devoted to, I suppose you might say, translating the world. Have you ever been in a newsroom? You, I mean, I'm in a big newsroom, like, say, the city room of some big newspaper. I'm not even talking about a radio station. Now, the thing that you think that you would feel is a sense of life there. You don't at all. 
you, you feel a sense of a newspaper newsroom. And, and the, the wires are going, the things are clicking, and uh, all the wire stories are coming, guys are on the phone. And after a certain length of time spent in one of these newsrooms, it's all a story. I, I see why we call news stories. You know, a story is a, is a tale. It's a, it's a fiction. And, and uh, the world out there becomes a, a big telephone call, or it becomes a long strip of yellow paper. Uh, Saigon is a, is a dateline. <laughs> it's literally dateline. And it's not real people with guys walking around sweating, getting ready to blow up the city hall or something. And so newsmen get this, this attitude, and you can't help it. And we're sitting around one night in a radio station. Of course, you can hear out in the next room, the news machine. It's the world still chugging away. And we have about 25 machines. There's UP, AP, Reuters, the whole jazz, you know, INS. Uh, international news wires. Oh, they're all good. We even have a sports wire, you know, that tells us what the, what the Worcester Orioles are doing. And, and it's doing, doing, doing. And there's a little thing, you know, the little Western Union ticker tape is going chunk, 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 ding, 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 chunk, chunk, chunk. And, and, and the scores are coming in of, of, of second rate hockey teams. And it's all, all the world is pouring in there in this little room about the size of a closet. <laughs> and, uh, and we're, we're sitting about three or four, Maybe five doors down in our in our control room, and you can hear the world banging away, and nobody's watching it. You see, the store is still running, and we're sitting in the control room, and the and the ETs are playing, and the the tapes are going on, and the rock and roll is going out, and you know reality is pouring out of the monitor speakers all over the place. And one of the guys got up just out of the cold blue of of that of that that strange evening. He walked into the newsroom and stood there for a couple minutes. He is now a very well known. Uh, broadcaster out of Chicago. But this is what he did this night in a Midwestern city. Now, we happen to have one of the few machines. Now, these machines, uh, uh, you know, the news machines are generally one way, that the world comes in, but nothing goes out. And there's no way to get in touch with the world. The machine just goes, Saigon, and that's it. But we had a machine that you could cut in on the line. You ever see one of those? We don't have one here at WOR. <laughs> Maybe for good reason, because of what happened. <laughs> this guy walks in. So he sits down in front of this wire, and it had a, you know, it had a little, uh, you, you've seen these teletype machines that has a keyboard on it, see? And he throws it on. It goes like that. It hums for a minute. And he goes, chunk, 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 chunk. Sends about three X's on the line. And you see the receivers over in the corner go, ding, ding, three X's come through. It goes all the way through. He's in touch with the world. So, and then, then he, he sets it back. And then all of a sudden, the query comes on the line. A couple of question marks. Somebody is saying, what's, what, the, what was that? <laughs> Somewhere, someplace in New York, they want to know who's, who's sending on the line. And uh, he sends a false call. LDWX3. Ding, 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 ding. He sends about nine bells that says he's got a big break that's coming, a big news flash. Ding, 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 ding. Gung, gung, gung. Gung, 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 gung. And then he stands by. Well, then, of course, he goes. The world wants to know what's happening. What's happening there in this little town, in this little tiny place? 
Well, he sits down in front of the machine. He goes... He types out the most insane... The most insane news break you ever heard. I won't even tell you what it is because you probably remember the incident because it got international coverage. Anyway, he types out this news note, something to the effect that a... a, uh, a, uh, an entire formation of jet bombers was shot down yesterday afternoon by a kid with a BB gun. He shot him down outside of Cincinnati. They all came down. The kid has admitted it now, and the FBI is investigating. Chung, chung, chung. He is obviously a Russian spy, this kid. Doing, 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 it goes. Well, there's a silence on the end of the line for a second. It just sort of hangs out there. And then you hear ding 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 query ding 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 it goes Q U E R Y ding 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 P S R P T please repeat doing 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 gong 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 it goes and so he comes in he goes he types it all out again well within within five minutes this thing was on newscasts all over the country all over the country. And newscasters were saying, you know, they, they had the dateline, and they read it just the same way that they read out of the Kremlin, that they read, uh, and now from Washington, uh, and now the weather. Uh, they read the same thing, and now from... <laughs> and we're sitting in the control room, and we're hearing it coming out of the network all over. You know, we're carrying the net. We could hear the, the guys in Chicago and New York, they're reading this thing. And do you know, to this day, it was never reported that this news item was a totally fallacious item. It is now in various anthologies of strange stories of the year, odd things that happen <laughs> in various places. It was, it was reported on by the BBC. The BBC picked it up. Oh, sure, it went on the international wires and all that stuff. It was a good story. He invented a story. And so a couple of nights later, we're sitting there, and he says, you know, I wonder if other guys are inventing this stuff that we're reading. And suddenly it occurred to us there might be guys all over the world cutting in on news wires, inventing stuff by Khrushchev, inventing great statements by Johnson. Uh, you could cut in on the wire and say, Barry Goldwater, tonight challenge. <laughs> you could have the whole world fist fighting in 10 minutes just by cutting in on the wire. And yet would it, uh, it's the reality of it. Is there, is there or is there not? When you sit down and read a newspaper, do you feel like you're reading a newspaper or you're hearing a voice tell you about what's happening all over the world? That's a good question. It's, it's a, is it, is it, are you reading the Times or are you in touch with existence? I don't know. It's hard. When you read about Vietnam, is there a real Vietnam or is it a news story or is it just an argument you use to yell at guys who don't believe in your politics? Is it a real place? Uh, have you ever gone to a place where something really is happening? One of the big stories that you read about? It's always a surprise, isn't it? It's a shock. It's a wild surprise to land on a runway or something where, where you know, you've been reading about it for weeks and suddenly you're there. I remember, you remember the Berlin airlift? Well, I was in Berlin. I, I, I it was, it was in, uh, about the third day of the airlift. I am, I'm flying. I'm flying from one place to the next. And I was in an airplane. I never told you about that. I was in an airplane, and we are in the, the flight pattern, and we are landing at the Tempelhof Aerodrome on a flight into Berlin, and I am in the airlift in Berlin, and all of a sudden, there's just a bunch of guys driving airplanes, you know, a whole bunch of Wheaties in the back of the plane and stuff like that, you know, milk and everything. We landed, and all of a sudden, it occurred to me, 
for crying out loud, this is, this is what they've been talking about. It looked like any other airplane. Mechanics were walking around, pushing things, and guys had coveralls on, and the planes were going, brum, 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 brum. you know how airplanes go, and I got off, and somehow it, it, it seemed less real than the stories in the Times were. It did. It did not seem real. And I, I walk into the uh, administration building, and they got candy machine there, and put a nickel in, and out comes a Baby Ruth bar, and, you know, this is... A, Somehow James Reston is not—he's uh, not around. You know, he doesn't say, "Well, you can still get candy bars at Temple Off Airdrome," and and uh, and out there, sure enough, you could see. We take off. Then the next day, we take off and we fly out over, and down there, you could see the Russian barricades. And it's just a bunch of guys standing around by trucks. You know, a couple of guys, and one guy smoking a cigar, and another guy's walking around. And a couple of guys with uh, machine guns on their backs. But you know, uh, this is the army. We fly off. And I've been to the airdrome. I've been through the uh, the airlift. Well, I got back, and somebody said to me, what did you think of the airlift? Boy, you were there. I said, well, yeah, you know. The guy starts telling me about it. He's reading about it in the Times. He says, you know, that uh, this morning, uh, the, uh, this morning, who was it? It was William White, I believe, in the Times. A very picture. He said, well, blah, 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 blah. I said, well, yeah, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I don't know. Of course, we have a very definite sense of unreality about so much of our world today. Do you know that out at the fair, that the, uh, what is it, the Berlin exhibit, that they're building now a model of the Berlin Wall so people can come and look at the model of the Berlin Wall. So, I say, you know, is it showbiz or not? What is it? You know, it's uh, it's funny. It's uh, There it is. I suppose someday there will be a model of Vietnam with little airplanes hanging over it, you know, and little tracer bullets. Well, it's this uh, this unreality uh, keeps going through. I remember one of the very first memories that I have about that kind of thing was a memory from the Chicago World's Fair. And I was just a little kid. And, uh, of course, when you're a little kid, the uh, memories really are branded into your mind. You know, you don't uh, just remember. It's part of your life from thereafter. Well, they had a thing called the Belgian Village at the World's Fair, just like they have here. But do you know what the Belgian village was at the Chicago World's Fair? Wait till you hear this one. It was a Belgian village that had just been leveled by a German artillery barrage. The whole village! You walked in and it was blasted! Seriously, there were ruins, smoking ruins. And and at the end of the street, they had set up a, a, a mock anti-aircraft battery. And they had a great big searchlight, fantastic searchlight, one of these big uh, arc searchlights, you know, that they use for, for anti-aircraft batteries. And these guys had it set up at the end of the street. Now, next to them was a house. It was a, it was a, it was a bistro, it was a little tavern. And they had the little tables outside, and the tables were all torn up and turned over and ripped up and blown up. And the house was blown off, the top of it was blown off, and hanging right in the middle of it all, all kind of busted, you know, and hanging down with a wing sort of lapping down, was a gigantic, it was laying right there in the lights, was a German albatross biplane fighter that had been shot down in this little village. It was laying there. It was crashed into the top of this building. Now, this was an exhibit. It was a whole, it was all life-size, you know. I'm not telling you about a model. This is life-size. You came in like, you you know, at the fair, you visit the the globe there, you walk around the Unisphere and you go into the better thinking department over there and the better living and the better taste department. Everything is wonderful at that fair. Have you noticed? There is not even a suggestion that, that there is another side to life. 
There's a great big thing that says uh, peace through understanding. That's it. That takes care of it. I guess Moses believes that. All you got to do is understand. I'm sorry, Mr. Moses. I think that the more a guy understands his neighbor, the more he's willing to bat him in the ear. I, I think understanding is what makes guys get mad. The minute the world understood what Hitler was up to, that's the minute they went after him. And that's just the way it worked. Uh, we like to think of understanding as forgiving. That's one of the great uh, twisting of words. We like to think that understanding means somehow forgiving. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Oh, no. The minute I understand that I'm in a bad situation, I'm either going to kick somebody or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow the wall out and I'm going to bust out somehow. But understanding almost always means fighting. It rarely means the opposite. Uh, incomprehension of a situation, often you'll accept it. That, uh, that this is what uh, happened in the German population. They didn't quite understand what they bought. The minute they understood it in the mid-30s, they were frantic. But it was too late. Guys were marching around, you know, hock, tung, and they had the guns. Boy, you don't fight much when the tanks are rattling past the old country club, you know, <laughs> with the local alderman in it. And, and you vote the right way then, you know. You really do. You learn about voting and everything else. But uh, understanding, I don't know. And, and yet, uh, here was a World's Fair, and uh, a blasted Belgian village. Now, how many years before? I mean, World War I was a long time in the past, boy, when, when the Chicago World's Fair was going. A long time. And yet, somehow, they thought in terms of putting up a, a, a display like this. Now, what was, what was different about the world then was that what would happen if, say, uh, France... Just just taking uh, an example. What would happen if France uh, put a, an exhibit out here at the World's Fair and it showed a French-occupied village? And you had, uh, you had mock uh, SS men walking around, you know, and, and you, had, you had guys with the FFI down in their plot and guys sending messages. And, and at the end, the, the whole city is blasted, the big holes in the ground where the Stukas have come down and blown up the end of the street. And now here it is. What would we do? I'll tell you, it would be a tremendous exhibit, wouldn't it? Uh, wouldn't people go to see it? Absolutely. But what would happen? Immediately, the Germans would be picketing <laughs> out there. They would Now, if the French says, yeah, but I mean, you're picketing, but isn't it true? I mean, you did do this. I mean, this is a little village we got down there. It's, it's an exact reproduction of a little village called uh, uh, La Troc, we'll say. It's, it's uh, by the passport. This is exactly it reproduced exactly. We even got the same guys. We brought them all over here. We even hired the same SS man to walk around. Uh, we wouldn't want it. We'd say, no, 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 no. Why? Well, is it, is it rekindling old hatreds? No, I don't think so. I don't think when, when you see pictures of the Civil War uh, soldiers, and I, that's not rekindling all hatreds. It just reminds you of history. The things are not always what they seem to be. And yet, here I'm a kid, you know, and I'm, and I'm taken to see the Belgian village. Well, I walk down through the Belgian village, and here at the end of the street is this airplane laying there. That's Albatross. Now, that's a German fighter of, uh, of that war, the World War I. There's a big fighter that's laying down there, and hanging out of the cockpit is the pilot. He's been blasted, and he's just laying, hanging out there, and you can see him up there. You know, it's up in the light there. He's just sort of hanging back, and it's, it's a dummy, of course, but he's just sort of hanging back. You see this big German helmet. And he's hanging down. You can see his scarf is sort of hanging down. And he's been shot. You can see the blood on his jacket. And the plane has crashed right there. And every night at about 10 o'clock, 
they would have a mock air raid there. They really did. And this, this was a French 75 that the Belgians had, and it was uh, used for anti-aircraft work. And these Belgian soldiers with those funny little hats they wear and those little helmets, those little French uh, frog helmets, they come out. And, and these guys would all gather like mad. And they, they've got the big ears that they're going. You know, they use those big ears. They would hear the airplanes uh, before radar. And, and uh, the people would come and watch this. And, and the, the searchlights would reach up in there and up in the sky. And everyone was fascinated, you know, because you'd see the smoke swirling through it. And they would start firing these French 75s. Well, now, they had some kind of dummy cartridge that looked like ACAC. You'd get the ACAC pom-poms up there, and they'd go, chum, 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 chum. it would go, boom, boom, boom. You ever heard of 75? They're wild. You go, boom, boom, boom. And then you'd see, boom, 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 boom. Up in the sky, you'd see those pom-poms going. And, and the searchlights would play, and they had sound systems, and you were right there in the middle of it. And that was the Belgian exhibit. <laughs> well, you come away, you know, you got a different attitude towards it. Now, now I can think of a lot of great exhibits that various countries could have if they were ever going to have realism at the fair. Really. Uh, for example, uh, oh, I can think of a lot of them. Can you imagine the Japanese exhibit? <laughs> Or, or, or even that. Can you can, now? Can you imagine uh, the state of Hawaii decides to have the Hawaiian exhibit, and they decide that the, that uh, that the most famous day that they've had in a long time, and there's certainly something that you think about when you think immediately of Honolulu, uh, you'd have uh, the December seventh, and so you would have what they call uh, the uh, you would have Pearl Harbor there. And you'd have this place where you go, and these planes come over, you see, and just raise, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Ah, you see the guys, the ships are sinking and everything. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. And, and of course, I think this would be a big exhibit. <laughs> I think people would be more interested in that than the Swiss Skyride, or than say the GM Futurama. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a different kind of, it's a different attitude towards the world. Now, now, uh, on the other hand, you want to know what some of the other exhibits were at that fair? Well, I remember one. <laughs> oh, boy, this was a great one. Uh, they had, they had this, this tremendous set of white stairs that just went right up. Just great white stairs. And it was, a, it was an exhibit. Uh, it was a pavilion. And, uh, this tremendous white staircase went up and it was a building. They had kind of Roman columns. And rising from the center of it, just where you'd look up, like where, where the clock would be at Grand Central, rising from the center of this thing, they had a tremendous white eagle. This eagle stretched up for about four miles. And on either side, they had these enormous red, black, and white flags that went all the way up, way up to the sky. And they had sort of searchlights playing on it. And in the middle of each one of these flags was a well-known symbol which today uh, is a well-known symbol. Uh, and, and, and in the background, you could hear them singing, Deutschland Ober alles, pom, pom, pom. They're singing. <laughs> it, was, it was the thousand-year Reich uh, had its little display going on there. And, and, and uh, oh, yeah, did you know that they had this at the World's Fair? So people would walk past, and they'd look at that, and then, And they're singing away there, 
And, and in the back, they had a genuine beer hall where everyone could sit around and sing, uh, sing uh, dueling songs from Heidelberg. You know, they bang on the thing. And they say, And they're banging and yelling. And once in a while, a, a couple of battalions would march through wearing the newest uniforms. And, they, you know, it was a kind of an interesting exhibit. <laughs> and then people would walk on down to the next one. Well, now, this was a World's Fair that really, as we, as we say in showbiz, it, was, it sang. Uh, <laughs> there was not a moment, there was not a moment uh, that you could t really uh, say was a moment of, of boredom. Now, one other thing they had there, now, what would you think that the Greeks would have? Well, now, most people would say, now, I'm sure that the Greeks have this, they must have this beautiful Acropolis there. They have... Uh, Greek uh, art objects and probably put on Greek plays. Well, no, 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 no. This was the age of realism. The Greeks had a rotten, stinky Greek fishing village where a lot of Greeks sat around and tried to give the business to the tourists, just like they do in Greece. <laughs> they did! And a bunch of Greeks sitting around there selling bad food and yelling and hollering at the tourists and, and with their hands out for the tips. Well, everybody went there to do it. And they'd, they'd give them the money and the Greeks would, would hurl Greek curses at them. And they would drink that terrible wine that tastes like turpentine, and they'd go staggering, reeling out into Chicago, and they'd been in Greece for about 20 minutes. But the real Greece, you see. <laughs> well, now, we had a Chicago exhibit there. What do you think Chicago had as his exhibit? You're curious about that. Well, what was Chicago famous for? That's right. They had a pantheon of all the great Chicagoans, led by Al Capone. And yet they did. They had wax. They had wax. <laughs> Al Capone was over here, and Big Lefty was over here, and Bathhouse John was standing there taking a fix, and the whole thing, all the way up and down. And they had a tasteful display of various captured Thompson submachine guns and Tommy guns, and they had, they had a display of pineapples used by various gangs. They really did, I'm telling you. It's a fact. Well, of course, everybody who came from... Uh, uh, from London to the world's fair. This is what they wanted to see about Chicago. You know, they don't want to be told about the art museum. They got an art museum in London, you know. They got all that stuff. So they wanted to see the real thing. And, and there it was. They had this great display. And they had movies. <laughs> they had movies of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, various other big moments in Chicago's illustrious past. Now, I'll tell <laughs> you, I could tell you more of those exhibits. And if you think I'm exaggerating... Uh, I have somebody sent me a uh, a World's Fair uh, directory of that World's Fair, and it is as different as night from day from our World's Fair. Our World's Fair today is as full of slogans as any of the poor old. Uh, well, you know, we laugh at the communists for their use of slogans. We do, and yet you cannot walk 20 feet at the World's Fair without seeing a slogan looking you in the eye. Some big slogan that says like "Peace through understanding." Thinking through beauty, uh, joy through whoopee. Uh, everywhere you look is a big slogan, and even the na even the names of the streets have that kind of thing. Like, better living through uh, Big Shots Street. Uh, more money for General Motors uh, will lead to Eternal Happiness Avenue. Uh, every one of the streets has got a name like that. You know. <laughs> well, you know, in the in the in the middle of the Depression, when they had the Chicago World Street, they might have named streets like uh, Pearl Harbor Day Street. Uh, there would be a street, a black hole of Calcutta Street. Uh, to, oh, yeah. Oh, that's another thing. Do you know that they had an exhibit at the fair there? An exhibit at the fair that was fascinating. Uh, this was an exhibit, again, that I saw as a kid, and I never forgot it. 
there was an exhibit there, and I, I don't recall what hall it was in or anything, but the exhibit was great classical prisons, jails, and, and, and Bastilles throughout the world. Yes! They had, they, you could walk into a cell of the Bastille. A genuine Bastille cell. They had a cell in the Tower of London, you know, where, where they behead all the princes and all that stuff. And with, with the actual stuff, the manacles and the chains and the racks, they had a, a mock-up of the Black Hole of Calcutta. You could go in and sit there for a while and sweat like mad, get yelled at, the snakes bite you. And, and, oh, they had, they had great, they had a, they had a, they had a model of a classical prison in, in Singapore that Somerset Mom had written about. They had various prison cells all the way on up through the ages. And then, of course, the model was the beautiful uh, picture-windowed cell that Al Capone had occupied <laughs> in his declining days when he had telephone lines, you know, coming in and ticker tape. He had te television and everything else there, you know. And it's just the modern cell. And, of course, the modern cell looked better than the average flat on the south side of Chicago. So everyone would sit there and say, gee, isn't this great? It was then that a lot of guys decided on a life of crime, you know, sitting there. Gee, this is so nice. Look at running water and everything. It's the heat. And no rent. That's very good. <laughs> very good. The total welfare state, of course, is a jail. Uh, that's, that is. That's the total welfare state. There's no question about it. And, and I remember being taken by my, my, my old man. We, he says, now this, uh, you know, and I'm being led into the Bastille. And uh, <laughs> he says, now this is the Bastille. And, and I said, gee, wow, you know, you could see the blood all over the walls, and you could see little pieces of bone, and you could see where a guy's foot got busted off. And he says, well, of course, this is immediately after the storming of the Bastille. He said, it was a very big day, but uh, now let's go into the black hole of Calcutta. Well, now, when you came out of this World's Fair, you knew a little about the world. You didn't know many slogans. Uh, they didn't have many things that says, happiness through better cells. Nothing like that. They did not have a sign over the Belgian village. This will never happen again because we all are great people and we're thinking beautiful now and understanding through peace. Or what is it? Peace through... Which, which way does it go? That's one of those interchangeable uh, slogans. You can just interchange the words. Understanding through peace. Does that sound better than peace through understanding? Which sounds best? Which way are you going? Understanding through peace. Yes, I believe they're both equally valid. You can say understanding through peace. We will never understand ourselves until we're peaceful, right? Okay. See, it makes sense. Now, on the other hand, you can say peace through understanding, which means we will never have peace unless we understand each other, right? That doesn't make much In fact, the first one made a little more sense, actually, <laughs> now that I think about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, indeed. Well, uh, of course, you, you, can, you, can, you, can be, you can be hailed as a, as, a, as a bad guy, even in your own neighborhood, if you bring up a few of these issues. Here, here for example, now, here's a little thing from Britain. I must, I must close out tonight's sermon. Uh, with with a little uh, report from what's happening in Britain. Now, if I were to do a one-act play like this, you would say, oh, no Britisher would do this. This is terrible. Listen to this. London, pub owner Alfred Marvin said yesterday he would defy... By the way, wouldn't you love to hear the BBC doing this? The BBC would do it something like this. <laughs> London, pub owner Alfred Marvin said yesterday he would defy a 129-year-old British law and publicly fight a bull on Sunday. In public. We quote here, I'll defy the RSPCA and the bull, said the publican. The RSPCA is the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. The bull in question is a full-grown jersey from Hampshire County. Marvin, 46, plans to fight it on the lawn of his pub to raise money for his pet charity, cancer research. 
He's hired a matador's outfit, complete with sword. I have been told the bull's a friendly animal, said Marvin. However, nobody can predict how a bull will behave in front of a noisy, excited crowd. He said he expected a paying audience of several hundred. Asked if he planned to kill the bull, Marvin replied, I will only be nasty with him if he's nasty with me. By God, there's an Englishman. Bullfighting has been illegal in Britain since 1835, said a spokesman today for the RSPCA. If Mr. Marvin insists on disregarding our warnings against fighting the bull, we'll take the strongest possible action. The publican replied, Well, sir, I'm dead set against all forms of cruelty, and I can't see how any is involved in this case. I stand a good chance of being gored, personally. I've had a nasty bull. I'll be nasty to him. Marvin, who's never fought a bull before, has been warming up by making mock passes at his pet ram named Bimbo. And tonight we salute Mr. Marvin as a Britisher. By George, sir, a Britisher. If he's nasty to me, I'll be nasty to him. This has always been the British attitude toward the world at large. <laughs> now, now, I don't think we ever see that Britisher. That kind of Britisher is never mentioned uh, by uh, Peter Sellers. Uh, Peter Cook never mentions him. I'll tell you, the only guy I ever read or, or even know about who even touched upon this facet of the reality of British life is Joyce Carey. That is a character right out of Joyce Carey. And uh, if any of you are interested in reading about that side of the world, I would suggest you pick up a copy of, uh, oh, shucks, The Horse's Mouth would do it. Read about old, that's Gully Jimson right there. Gully Jimson would have said that. If he gets nicer to me, I'll get nicer to him. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, uh, do you remember, do you remember uh, Alec Guinness playing Gully Jimson in The Horse's Mouth? Remember that great, uh, the great scene where he where he's on the telephone. He said, "Well, uh, this is a Royal Academy speaking. Uh, Mr. Gibson uh, is destitute and he needs fifty pounds. Would you please send it immediately, Mr. Well, and the cop is outside, <laughs> laying the nab on him, and, and the cop just sort of motions to him. Oh, I'm just running a phone call, and he runs out and runs down the sidewalk. He's an artist, remember? He's a great artist, and he's destitute." And he's trying to get people, and, and, and they're having a gigantic show of his paintings at the Royal Academy. He doesn't have a nickel, so he's trying to shake. This is, this is, this is Mr. Jimson's secretary. Uh, Mr. Jimson needs 50 pounds immediately. Would you please? Well, he's calling up everybody. He gets no money. He runs down the street, and suddenly he sees five kids on the street. The cop is chasing him, remember. And five kids are down on their knees, and they're drawing drawings on the sidewalk. And he stops for a moment. Looks their drawings over, <laughs> and he continues to go. That is that is the side of of man that rarely, rarely do we hear in America. It's the brick mush side. It's the it's the horseradish man coming around. Uh, it's it's the it's the man it's the man who who uh, who sells who sells uh, used cars. It's the it's the guy who who fixes tires. Uh, it's the guy who operates the service shop down three blocks from the main stem. The guy who sits there all day long and sells transistor radio batteries to little old ladies who come in hoping that they can hear WQXR louder. <laughs> you know, it's that guy living there all the time, that, that eternal man, you know, who walks around, he sees a big sign that says, Peace Through Understanding. And he just turns, he's licking his dairy cream, 
He turns and he says, Oh, the pig's ear piece. Will you shut up, you kids? I'm trying to think. I don't know where we're going to go. I'm out of money. All right, let's go look at the Unisphere for a while. Peaceful understanding. Takes another lick of his big old ice cream bar and hopes that someday the light may dawn. 